Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Matt Johns. Matt, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide. Great to be here. So tell our listeners a little bit about Matt Johns. Um, okay, so Matt Johns. Um, you got to so tell I'm them where the, you are first. I mean. Well, I'm Matt Johns, definitely. <laughs> no, I said where you are. Oh, where <laughs> I am. <laughs> where I am. Uh, so I'm, I live in uh, Auckland City, which is in beautiful New Zealand. Um, so probably about as far away from you as you could possibly get without <laughs> going down to Antarctica. Um, so uh, middle of the day for us right now, which is, which is a beautiful sunny day. Um, so I've been living here most of my life. I've lived in Australia for a little while, but um, came back a few years back. Uh, I've got two adult daughters here, um, kind of 19, 21, uh, pretty close to going on the next stage of their life, still a handful. Um, but I, I guess I've got a, a relatively varied background. I'm, I'm obviously the, the CEO of Deliberate, which is, uh, which is a, a um, strategic consultancy. Um, you know, we help um, connect strategic decision-making and uh, with deliberately designed experiences for customers and employees. And um, I might talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but um, I've had a, a range of, I guess, interesting roles. So uh, I was the uh, acting chief strategy officer at Deloitte for a wee while. Um, obviously I learned a few interesting things there. Uh, I've headed up customer experience consultancies um, uh, in based in Australia, covering the Asia Pacific region and a little bit beyond. Um, I've headed up an employee experience consultancy based in New Zealand across Australia and New Zealand. Um, going back a little bit further, um, uh, I was in various senior management roles um, in the industry. So uh, investment, uh, finance, insurance, um, a few things like that. <clears throat> if you go back a little bit further, I guess my background gets a little weird. I'm actually an ex-cop uh, from the UK. So I, um, I guess I took the most uh, unusual uh, step when most Kiwis tend to go traveling around the world, they end up in a bar in London or some professional services consultancy somewhere. And I ended up as a cop in the Southwest of England um, just because I could, which is kind of weird. So I was, I was kind of lucky. I did some fascinating work in that uh, surveillance uh, informant stuff, a uh, bit of undercover work. So uh, which always raises a few eyebrows and uh, going back one step further, I'm, I'm actually ex-military too. My first job out of, out of high school was uh, joining the Navy, which we briefly talked about a moment ago. Um, I didn't actually go to uni at all. Uh, and in fact, it's the best thing I didn't do. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, I, I initially went through a, a phase where I wondered whether or not that was a big mistake. And, and you know, as I got into my early and mid thirties, I realized it absolutely wasn't. <laughs> it was kind of forced me to learn things a slightly different way. Uh, of course, you know, when I was in the police, um, I studied and got very much into criminology, um, which I did pretty well at, um, but it taught me um, a lot about uh, people, behavior, bias, motivation, things that have, that really resonate and stick with me today. Um, I've done quite a bit in um, design thinking um, uh, at both, both uh, with university and, and other kind of courses and a whole bunch of stuff in management and leadership, uh, including a few research projects, white papers, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a, a quick background as to who I am. So, I mean, you're only 24, so you must be changing jobs every two months, right? 
<laughs> I'm definitely not 24 anymore. <laughs> so he's the, I mean, did you, did you, listeners, I want you to take a pause right now. Did you hear that, that unbelievable, you know, track that he just outlined there that he's had so many opportunities and been in so many different things? I mean, if this is not the Wikipedia definition of an entrepreneur, I don't know what it is because we're never satisfied in a spot. You know, we're, it's, it's always, it's kind of a churning you know, rotating wheel that's spinning all the time. So let's go back. I, I want to touch on this, uh, the Nintendo would touch on the idea of, of you being a cop. I mean, I could, I could just picture that, you know, you could be undercover because your accent was so different, you know? The, <laughs> from the yeah, well, I was, I was definitely not a cop, right? Because I was clearly not English. So, <laughs> right. um, I mean, I, it's funny. It's one of those things. There, when, yeah. when, you, when you do go through the process of buying whatever it is you're out there buying, um yeah whether you like it or not every time you get searched and they always think you're wearing a wire and you're a cop labor and thinks that so but, you watch too much was, tv <laughs> yeah but it was yeah, exactly but it was pretty easy to convince them that i was just a kind of a rogue traveler a bit lost and down in my ways and, and it worked incredibly well so um you know and i learned some incredibly fascinating things about undercover work which uh and same within the police in fact actually the police is probably the role that i reflect on the most with the business we have now um, mm. understanding people, you know, we do a lot of qualitative research. Um, and I'm really not a fan of surveys. I think surveys are just a red herring. They're a distraction from reality. Uh, and far too many decisions are made based on the outcomes of a survey without any real insight. Um, so we, we place a lot of stock in qualitative research. And a lot of that comes from interviewing people in the police. Um, you know, my job, if you really didn't want to talk, was to get you to give me answers to questions I wasn't asking you, um, which is the kind, of, the kind of way we frame now our qualitative research. So yeah. ethnography, which is, a, I guess, a discipline in, in qualitative research, we, we want you to start talking about stuff and I'm guiding you, but you don't really realize it. So I'm going to try to backtrack <laughs> and walk, walk through this, uh, this timeline and, and ask questions as, as, we, sure. as we're walking along. But so you mentioned you did not go to university, and but yet no. you worked for De- Deloitte. How did yeah. you kind of get over that hurdle? Because, I mean, normally that's kind of like a minimum barrier of entry, is it not, in, in, in a consultancy like that? Yeah, uh, but, I, but I wasn't hired as a grad, right? So um, uh, certainly to my advantage is, is I, I wasn't hatched out of a grad bubble and brought up in this make-believe world. Yeah. Um, you know, and something I increasingly became aware of when I was at Deloitte is that the greatest hurdle for, for young grads and, and consultants coming into the business was simply their um, inability to demonstrate any real world competency to mm. the businesses they were trying to advise. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the business that they're trying to advise can download that methodology. They can download the process. So how are you adding value again? You know, that, that, that was a real issue for, for a lot of young grads and, and, and remains, in fact, it's probably even bigger and, and more important now. Right. Um, I, I was uh, actually at the time the uh, head of direct distribution, effectively head of sales at a investments and, um, uh, and finance business. Um, and I actually don't really know why I got called, but I got called out of the blue and I was asked if I was interested uh, coming into uh, to Deloitte. And the, my principal role was to guide and mentor partners and how to go about engaging meaningfully with customers, which was quite of a random role and requests. And I'll be brutally honest with you, having not gone through university, I had no idea who Deloitte was. 
have absolutely no idea. So when they called and said with this really big company, I'm thinking, okay, like, I don't know who you're talking about. So um, I, I literally went in to this conversation pretty relaxed going, I don't really know why you've called me, but sure. I, I know I'd written a few papers and stuff and I know that probably yeah. got you know, ears pricking up. But um, And so my role wasn't actually stuck within a service line as it were. Mm-hmm. So KPMG and PwC, they're all the same. They've got uh, you know consulting and audit and tax and enterprise risk and all that are all just sub-businesses right. within the big brand. Um, and so I never sat within any one. My role was over the top of it as an extension essentially to the executive. Um, and so that role morphed pretty quickly into assuming responsibility for the chief strategy officer role. Um, you know, and I learned pretty quickly that um, because of the energy and time I was putting into it and my desire to deliver um, you know, better outcomes for customers internally and externally, I realized pretty quickly that, that I had picked up probably more in terms of valuable insight about strategy than most of the young grads had because I could, I could reflect on experiences in the past and they couldn't. So uh, yeah, uh, it was an incredibly fascinating role. Can we take a little bit of a right turn right here and, and just, or maybe just put the car in, in park and just, just camp on this for just a second, because, sure. you know, we're, we're going to have <laughs> listeners that are going to, you know, that are, they're certainly for various reasons. They, they either decided not to go to university or were not able to go to university <clears throat> or whatever. Yeah. What, what just give me a piece of advice or two that you think is really like salient for someone that might find themselves in that position and think, I am not qualified to do these roles. I'm not qualified to apply for these roles. I'm, I'm, you know, how would you, how would you kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word offset because I don't want to frame it as a deficiency, but the whole idea, how do you kind of round out your, you know, your CV or round out your resume, round out your portfolio with that, with that education piece not being there? Uh, I, I think if there was a, a, almost a single piece of advice I'd give is to not get distracted and worry about what you don't have. It's to focus on what you do have. Uh, now, if you are, if I was maybe 22, 23, 24 years old, when I was kind of going through that exercise, that would have been a lot tougher because yeah. there was nothing I could have reflected on yeah. um, other than the military <clears throat> in, a, in a funny sense, because I joined, I think I just turned 17 years old. I was, I was incredibly young when I joined the Navy. So I guess I had something to reflect on, but um, I, I, you often hear people worried about what they don't have mm. and therefore not giving enough time and energy focusing on growing and developing the language around what they do have the things that they're passionate about, what they believe in, what they've been, what they've been learning uh, off their own back, what they're interested in and what, what really gets them energized, where they think they can add value, um, you know, where they've, you know, the things that people have complimented them on the past, um, you know, something that you don't go to school for, and yet I honestly believe is the single most critical asset in business today is the ability to clearly communicate. Mm-hmm. And no one goes to school or university to communicate. You come out with a piece of paper and can't communicate, you're in trouble. If you don't have a piece of paper, but you can communicate, you're going to do better. Right. As long as you're, you know, you're pushing your thinking, you're, you're reading, you're exploring, you're trying to understand, you're having good conversations. You know, we're learning all the time. Um, But, but I'd I'd really focus on what people are good at. Um, And uh, you know, I've, I've, spent a bit of time with employees who have worked for me or consultants who have worked for me. Um, and I, I definitely see this trait uh, more prominently with females. I, I don't think it's a gender thing necessarily, but I found that females uh, have 
um, certainly create their own ceiling um, and are afraid to put themselves forward knowing that they probably don't have the on-paper skill set. Uh, whereas traditionally a guy might put himself, himself out there a little bit too early and is nowhere near qualified to do it, but we'll, you know, we'll figure out his way. Right. Um, so for me, it's yeah, in the air. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like that. And sometimes I think, um, you know, guys can certainly be found out pretty, pretty fast too. Um, yeah. so I do like the idea. I think I heard in a TED talk years ago about, I don't remember who the speaker was, but, um, not faking it until you make it, but fake it until you become it. And becoming it simply means that you better put in the energy now to become it. Don't just wait for it to happen. Mm. So if you're going to put the time and energy in, um, you know, you're going to put yourself forward. You're going to assume that role, do everything you can to backfill the skills required now, rather than hope no one figures it out. Cause that's, I think what happens yeah. a bit too much. I'm, I'm I knew that that inner voice that told me to stop on that question and just camp out. I knew that there was going to be some gold there that we needed to cover <laughs> that was hidden under the little dirt on top. We just needed to move the dirt around a little bit. And, and uh, I really appreciate you unpacking that because I think it's going to be it, somebody that is listening to this that is going to be right down their street. I mean, it's going to be exactly what they needed to hear. But so speaking of uh, drilling down a little bit, so you and I are going to step on an elevator step on a lift, however you, how you frame that. And we're going to go up <laughs> 10 floors. You've got 45 seconds to give me deliberate elevator pitch. Tell me exactly what they do and what I can do for my company. So uh, deliberate does two key things. One, it helps organizations to make really clear decisions at a strategic level about how it's going to position the business for success. Uh, and then translates that both um, uh, as almost an extension to that translates that into what it means for customer experience and employee experience, um, both of which we believe uh, need to be deliberately designed, but are almost always left to chance. Um, the three are connected. St strategy is about direction, clarity, clear decisions. Uh, the customer experience is the, the um, underpins the uh, competitive advantage that you'll be seeking to, to gain as, a, as an entity, what puts you apart and what earns you the right to have repeat business and your employees do it all. <laughs> so disconnecting them, I, I think is a fundamental mistake. Um, I, I think I was, I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday. In my opinion, strategy is not the responsibility just of the CEO. Uh, customer experience is not the, the responsibility of marketing mm. uh, and employee experience is not the responsibility of HR. All three are the strategic responsibilities of the executive. And, and is that there a learning curve to get kind of C-suite to understand that? Or, I mean, do they have it kind of much more departmentalized in their mind or, uh, or do they get it when you talk to them? Um, most get it there, uh, particularly if there's a little bit of diversity within the executive. Mm. Uh, if, if they have um, developed a very narrow-minded um kind of male, white male, kind of um, uh, almost elderly thinking going on. And it doesn't actually have to be just white males, by the way. So right. I've, I've definitely engaged that old style thinking when there are different ethnicities represented, different sexes, it, but they're still thinking the same way because they think that's what they should do to fit into this group. Mm. If that happens, it, it's hard uh, because yep. they just don't want to learn. They don't want to know that there's something to learn. They want uh, someone else to just give them the answer so they can get on with it fast. But increasingly, I think you're seeing organizations recognizing that um, their respons responsibilities are more than what they might have done in the MBA. 
<laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, it's just, just because somebody laid it out 37 years ago, it's, it's it, possible things have changed and there's probably right. a little bit more to learn. Right. I mean, I, you, you touched on it just a little bit er, earlier and I want to kind of circle back on this, this whole idea of just, uh, actually we talked a little bit off camera before we, we hit the record button, but the idea of, you know, how you're kind of leading your business in the current environment, you know, that all the, the, the surrounding kind of financial trough we're fi we find ourselves in with the coronavirus, the COVID-19, and it just, just the global impact that's had. So what are you doing as a, as a company, as, a, as a, you know, the founder of your company, what are you doing to kind of position yourself to be able to navigate these waters and you know, cast vision for employees and things like that? Uh, absolutely eating our own cooking. Um, so um, we are firm believers in really well-considered and methodical decision-making around strategy. Um, and there are a, a few steps that we, you know, take clients through all the time. Um, the first is being crystal clear on what the problem is that we need to solve. So what is the strategic problem? Um, COVID-19 is not the strategic problem. It caused the strategic problem. Mm. So it, it led to an issue with you. So, and it's usually something to do with, um, uh, a change in your customers' needs and behavior um, or an impact on your revenue stream. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive or uh, something going on with your competition. You know, they're, they're doing something and you're panicking about it. You know, there's other things as well. There's regular regulations and all that kind of stuff that impact you as well. But if you don't know what your strategic problem is, by definition, everything else is just a guess and reactive. You're not actually solving any problem because you haven't figured out what the problem is. Um, so we, we're really clear on what the problems are for us. We, we know that um, much of the work that we do is facilitation and we know we're really good at it. Um, we facilitate better thinking processes and, and you know, intervention and, and guidance uh, in room. Now, clearly, we can't do that right now. Right. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's, that's forced us to think about how we can continue to deliver value, but in a different way. So the first step is getting clear on that, that strategic problem, which we know now. Um, and then do, again, what I advocate for a lot with clients. Once you know the problem, uh, what are the distinctively different possibilities that you might consider to solve the problem? Distinctively different. You've got to create options. If there's one obvious um, issue that I find with organizations around strategy uh, is that they, they never actually made a choice. They never decided anything. They just worked up an idea and kept working up that idea and then eventually created something called an operational plan. Then they call it a strategic plan because they like the word strategy, even though it's not really a strategy at all. Um, but at no stage do they ever make any choices. So their inability to think creatively and give themselves options was a real, was a real issue. Um, and so we've got options. We, we can think about, okay, what, what would that mean if we really utilize digital facilitation um, within that, for example, you know, are we, are we going to be running, video-based courses um, and effectively paint by numbers or do we facilitate one-on-one -on -one, or do we defer the work and get onto it later on and set it up for, you know, so it's different roads. Um, and then the last bit is we really consider uh, what would need to be true for each of those ideas to be a successful strategy. So what needs to be true in terms of in-customer in value, what needs to be true in, in terms of competitive reaction costs, all those kinds of things. Um, and so we've very quickly been able to get through a process of thinking, make some very clear choices and position ourselves for what we are doing now to slightly pivot based on this current situation that's clearly going to roll out for a few more months yet. 
So I, I'm curious about how um, it's like CEOs would, would view your service. Would they, in, in a time of crisis like this, would they view you this as a, as a luxury service or they, they view this as, a, as a, you know, an absolute crucial, almost utilitarian thing that we cannot live without or is it somewhere in between? And, and how, do you, how are you, I guess, framing it so you're even changing their thinking if they're viewing it you know, in your, in your mind, maybe possibly even wrongly. Yeah. So, uh, in my professional opinion and based on my experience, I don't think a lot of executives, um, including a lot of CEOs even understand what strategy is. They've just said the word lots. They've got a lot of documents that say strategy on it, which must mean it's strategy, right? Cause it's a PowerPoint deck. It's got a hundred good pages in it. Lots of interesting graphs, a whole bunch of hockey stick things where we're going to magically win one day. And on the front, it says strategic, a plan for 2021 or something, you know? So um, I, I just think that many really don't understand what strategy is all about and the difference between strategy and tactic for, versus just doing what you're always doing. Those uh, leaders who have at least, they either get strategy or at least appreciate that there's probably a lot to learn will realize or recognize at least that getting support and guidance through a process of thinking right now to therefore create really good strategy is arguably the most important thing they can possibly do. Mm. Um, and therefore it's not a luxury at all. It's an absolute business and commercial necessity. Um, the risk of not having one is massive. Yep. If you're just doing and reacting, you'll, you'll make the wrong decisions. You won't make any decisions. You'll run a hundred miles an hour into a brick wall or you'll burn people out. Um, or you'll just fundamentally miss the need in the market. You'll just get it all wrong. Um, just because you haven't gone, well, okay, let me just take stock here and go through a bit of a process of thinking. Yeah, th those who don't necessarily appreciate it or certainly don't want to be told that they don't really understand strategy, uh, or to me, I think you're going to see a really fascinating change in business around the world. Some, some big brands, I think, will die pretty fast. Mm. Um, and some kind of fringe brands will suddenly take over. Um, and, and this is, I think, going to be a trigger for quite a bit of change. So, um, you know, those established organizations who have done it one way for a long time and it's been making money, sure, <laughs> but everything's just changed and the impact of this change is going to roll out for years. It's not, you know, we're not going to go, there's no such thing as go back to normal. I no, absolutely no agree. It's not going to happen. We just don't even know what the next stage is, but when you break it down, you can make some pretty good bets. Yeah, I, I mean, I could not agree more. I, I've spent a lot of time, you know, having conversations, obviously online with, uh, with colleagues and, and just friends about that very topic about, you know, in the history of mankind, have we ever had a global reset like this? No. You know, I mean, I'm thinking. No, no way humans still existed at the end Black of the Plague, you know, Spanish flu. I mean, those, those had global impact, but they, did they fundamentally change the way we do business and yep. the way we operate and the way we view each other and the way we interact globally. And it's just, it is a, it is a fascinating time to be alive, to see. Uh, I mean, I hate the fact that it's, it's caused that this is the cause and this is the result, but to see what is this going to look like, you know, on, on this global reset that is about yeah. to happen. And so what do you, what do you envision? I mean, Give me your futuristic, you know, prognostication about what do you think um, this is going to look like in, in, you know, give me 12, 18 months. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it could, could go down a bunch of different roads. I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I really have a lot of 
um, I'll put a lot of energy into um, principles behind customer experience. I'm, I'm a, um, you know, I, I, I think the experience of customers is arguably one of the, the most critical contributors to the ongoing success of a business. Um, not necessarily its first establishment because you can just come up with a cool new innovative idea and it kind of goes wild for a while. But, um, and one of those principles that I hold is probably the most important is to uh, set and meet expectations. Uh, in which case you need to not, not exceed them because exceeding them is a, like to me, a false economy. If you can do it, do it, say so. Don't, don't pretend that you can't and then let's dumb. So if you can do it, do it and just make sure you do it properly. Um, so set and meet expectations. A critical part of that is understanding what the expectations are and what's causing those expectations. And clearly through this period, expectations are changing really fast. Yeah. Uh, both, both in terms of the hangover from almost the accelerated speed thinking that's been going on over the last mm -hmm. decade, everyone wants everything real fast. Um, the likes of Uber and Domino's even, you know, these brands have just changed the way we think about instant, instant information and, yep. um, you know, getting it fast. Like, you know, you ask a kid a question, they Google it straight away because they can, you know, when we were kids, you had to go blast lots of people when you got lots of opinions and they eventually found a book if you could be bothered or you just didn't, you know, so the instant, exactly. instant view is, is um, pretty fascinating. Um, so some things people still want and there's a hangover from that, but also on the other side, I think people are going to tolerate a little bit more of things that they might not have tolerated in the past. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a really good example of someone who didn't, I don't really like buying things online because I like to touch things. I like to see what it feels like. I need to know what it feels like, like clothing, like on my body. Does it yep. fit right? Does it look all right? Does it a bit scratchy? Is it a bit, you know, I can't tell from an image. So I tend not to buy much on Amazon at all unless I've bought it before. And then I'll repeat buy. Yeah, sure, that's not new, but I think you're going to see an increased number of people be happy with that kind of interaction. The most fascinating part of this is what we're doing right now on a grand scale, people engaging digitally and feeling comfortable with it and still feeling connected enough to do that. Um, I don't think people are used to it enough. And I think the investment in digital assets has been really underwhelming for, for a long period. It's been a deferred thing because there's been no urgency. The urgency is really obvious now. <laughs> right. If you're going to get together, you know, 30 people from your wider management team across the globe and you're seeing all their faces on the screen, in the past, it would be, oh, I'll t you know, you, no, I guess, no, you go, no, you know, I, I think you've got the mute, oh, you know, so it, it's just because people aren't used to it. The technology sucks. Somebody's uh, Wi-Fi doesn't work particularly well, you know, just, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can see everyone, I mean, I've got headphones on right now, but it's, it's, you know, it, it, it they just haven't got the tools. So, um, this, I guess things are going to change and that people are going to feel more comfortable doing that more frequently, in which case, you know, one of our biggest challenges in Auckland, for example, is, is vehicles driving into the CBD, which is where everyone works. Mm -hmm. I think actually that the, the, what's going on here is that more people are going to go because of this massive social experiment, which is going on actually really, really didn't need those people to come into the, the CBD or at least not every day. Uh, why don't, you know, three out of the five days in the week, they just work from home, run the call center, we'll give them the tools. They just interact, feel comfortable, make a cup of tea in their own living room. Cool. Um, and then come in once or twice a week. So you still have that human interaction yep. uh, rather than, you know, it's got to be this way because it always has. It's coming. There's no <clears throat> yeah. doubt about it. I mean, yeah. uh, people hear that, you know, you know that you've given a little bit of a taste of the promised land. You let them, you've let them taste this idea mm. of working remotely. And if you don't do it, they will quit and go somewhere else. And yeah. you know, they'll find a, they'll find a company that 
they can they can make that transition toward. So that's that connection to employee experience. Yeah. So employee experience, exactly the same principles apply to ex- employee experience. They just manifest in a different way. Yeah. So that particular principle of set and meet expectations, you need to understand what their expectations are now. Their expectations is that they should be able to work remotely. Remember, because we did <laughs> and it worked and everything was fine. So why would you not? Why would you not have done that? Um, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. And I mean, just think of just, just the rent alone that you're saving in yeah. renting, you know, these massive buildings in the CBD. I mean, you know, just all over the world, not just Auckland, but all over the world of, of you know, just just plant and equipment and, you know, just the keeping the lights on in a, in a cubicle farm, you know, that you're trying to, to grow employees in. Do you know, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting point because uh, um, something I've been fascinated in for, for a while is activity-based working. Um, and from an employee experience perspective, I mean, employees are, you know, organizations have had this wallpaper on the, uh, in their boardrooms for years saying the employees are their most important asset. None of them actually believe it. They just see them as a cost mostly, right? But they genuinely are an asset. If but it's strategic to put it on the wall. <laughs> it is, right? Like, number one, shareholder return. Oh, that's inspiring. Um, but, you know, one of the most fascinating things about the physical environment that employees work in is that we have had this massive swing towards collaboration. The open plan workspaces. Everyone forgets, though, that the entire rationale for activity-based working was nothing to do with collaboration. It was to do with cost-cutting. It was getting more people into the same physical space. Yeah. And then they realized, well, that isn't particularly palatable. We better come up with a story for employees. So let's call it about collaboration and teaming. And it was just a load of BS. You know, it's not real. Um, and, and what I found, you know, we, we conduct a lot of audits in physical workplaces. We do the same thing for customers. You know, we do... Uh, not so much, um, uh, I guess it's qualitative research on site, but um, you know, when you're watching people trying to work in a physical space, the most common thing that I see impacting them is utter and complete distraction all the time. Totally distracted. Even if they want to focus, they can't because people are walking past them. You know, they've all got headphones in trying to drown out the noise. You Mm. know, there's nowhere to go, all that kind of stuff. It's just, so the productivity, no doubt we're having terrible productivity because people can't actually do the work. Um, you even get things where you've got little signs up saying, please don't disturb me. And then someone comes up and goes, sorry, I know you got the sign up. And I'm sorry, I just, just a quick second. I just quick question. So you know that thing we're talking about? Is that okay? And then they're gone. And you're thinking, uh, what was I? What was I doing again? And then they, you know, so they just wasted their time and then they start again and flip between screens and now they're lost. And then just when they're finally focused on their screen, a little pop-up says you've got an urgent email. And you're like, do I read the email? Um, so, you know, if there's one thing about working from home, if you can find a quiet space, it's a new sure. set of challenges, is that you don't have that distraction unless you have little ones running past you. Yeah, yep. sure, that's a different kind of distraction. Yeah, that I, I could not agree more. And it's, it is going to be interesting to see just the the result of this. You know what, what uh, you know what it forces employers to to have a you know a, a global rethink and and a totally. reset to think. Okay, how how can we how can we you know retain our staff? How can we you know put them in a position where they you know morale is high and output is high and productivity is high and and they feel valued you know in essence through this, but. Um, man, I could just sit here and just ask you questions all day long, but I mean, you're just, you're, you're making me think you're making me laugh. You're, you know, you're making me smile. I mean, all, all the emotions did just to go along. With that. I just love the conversation, but um, I do want to value your time. And as we're kind of wrapping up here today, I just wanted to ask you, give you a chance. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you just want to wrap up with real quick and then tell people where, where can they find you online? 
Uh, look, online, we, we our website is uh, deliberate.com.au, deliberate with alt and e, which it was a mistake, and we're actually in the middle of changing that. <laughs> so, so I guess in the in the um, in the spirit of disclosure, when we first created deliberate, we were you know we were playing around with the name, and um, and I realised that when I was giving, I, I do quite a few keynote presentations around the world, and, and uh, at least two or three times, I got introduced as Matt Johns, the CEO from Deliberate. And I was like, okay, that <laughs> didn't work. That thinking. really didn't work. <laughs> Deliberate. <laughs> Deliberate. Okay, so we're, we're in the process of changing that. But right now, www.deliberatewithoutanee.com.au, that'll just be changing shortly to deliberatewithanee.live. Um, and um, yeah, I, I guess what I, I did want to share, because I know one of the, the, the questions we were talking about earlier was about um, what people can be doing right now, um, COVID-19, you know, the situation. Uh, I've actually been running quite a bit of webinar work uh, recently uh, with clients about business development, uh, you know, proactive influence and, and getting the, the outcomes you're looking for. And of course, all of a sudden there's this focus on staying alive, but in, anyone who has a customer, which is pretty much anyone, um, in my opinion, if there's a single thing you can be doing for your customer right now is prove to them that you understand what's going on. You know, consider what they're probably feeling, what are they probably thinking and how is that impacting their behavior um, and changing their needs, um, and, and and with that, what are what are you as an organisation or an individual um, uh, in a position to be able to help with? So it might not be what you're traditionally able to help with, but you might be able to proactively take a problem. That that genuine desire to take a problem away proactively from the client. I think is one of the most effective ways you can demonstrate to the client that you really give a stuff about them. Mm. Um, and through this period, I think that the, the businesses that get that right, that put the effort into that thinking, who consider good ideas that could be shared with clients that are of value that I'm not trying to sell. I'm just trying to actually be of value to you. Those will be the businesses that earn the right to be successful when we come out the other side. What a great way to wrap up today and, and uh, just really kind of tie a bow around a neat little package, you know, the, <laughs> the conversation we've had today. And Matt, I, I just appreciate your vision and, and the way that you've kind of outlined this and walked us through this. And, and you know, I know that you are, are you know, certainly walking, you know, your team through this as well. And, and yeah. you know, there's fear even internally about this, but, and this, this really is a global issue. And I love the <clears> fact that you've kind of touched on this and, and really in two or, two or three different ways. And, really kind of a comprehensive view of leading well and leading through crisis and just playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Matt, thanks Very again. Cool. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I enjoy the conversation. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.